All right, well today we are going to pick back up on a story that stopped several chapters ago and about eight weeks ago, right in the middle of a great story. Now some of you were here and it was a very impactful week for you when we took a break from the study in Joseph to talk about Judah, Joseph's brother. That's the way that story is laid out. Now, if you're just joining us, you'll want to know that we're walking through the story of Joseph and his brothers, which is the last major section in the book of Genesis. And almost all of that story focuses on one man named Joseph, who becomes like Jesus in many ways that Christians are made like Jesus. But at two points in the story, the author breaks from talking about Joseph to showing us what is going on in the lives of one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. Several weeks ago, we followed the first portion of that story. We followed Judah as he became essentially the heir apparent in his family, uh, uh, the next one to be in charge, like a king in a great family. But he showed us what self-centered and even wicked, or I called it at the time, satanic leadership looks like. He forsook God's promises and decided to walk in his own ways. Uh, He put away good and godly friends and family and decided to walk with the wrong crowd. Uh, He became a callous man, didn't care at all for the people that he led. When his sons died, he seemed to shed no tear. And when his wife died, he got over her very quickly. Uh, He showed no sexual restraint at all, was walking down the street and just saw a prostitute and just immediately decided to change course and engage with her instead. Uh, And then... When it was revealed that a woman that he had mistreated very terribly, his two sons, two of them, were so wicked that God put them to death, one after the other. Uh, One of them was married to a woman named Tamar. When he died, she married the next son, and the Lord struck him as well. Uh, And Judah had just terribly mistreated this widow, sent her back to her house, shamed her very much. And when it became apparent that she had become pregnant by immorality, committing the same sin he had committed, Uh, He just kind of flipped his hands and said, ah, burn her, right? Take her out to be burned. He had no care for this woman. But then in the last moment, it was revealed that the father of that child was actually him, and she was the prostitute he had seen on the side of the road. And so this revelation is enough to make him step back and say, oh, I'm in the wrong, And so he vindicates her, he admits his sin, and then we're left right there wondering, wait, did did he change? Was that real repentance in Judah's heart? And as we talked about the ways that many times those of us in leadership like Judah can go astray, a lot of us were struck to the heart and we said, on one hand, I don't ever want to lead like that. What is a good model of leadership I can follow? And others of us were reminded of people who have led us in the past and said, I don't want to ever follow a leader like that again. How do I identify a good Christ-like leader when I find one? So it's those questions, those lingering questions. What happens to Judah? Does he really repent? How do I lead like Christ and not like him? And how do I find a good and godly leader who I can follow? It's those questions we pick back up today. That was the second scene in this story. Now in the second to last scene, the narrator takes us back to Judah, and we find out what has become of him. Now this is going to be a rather unique week. You have noticed, surely, that the sermon texts are getting longer and longer the farther we get into Genesis. It's structured like that. 
Today's is two whole chapters, chapter 43 and 44, and so this is when we make the hard decision not to read the whole sermon text this morning. Instead, I'm going to tell you the story, let you know what happens, and we'll read something at the end of it. Now, I do have to warn you ahead of time, it's a long story. The payoff at the end is worth it. But I'm going to need you to track for a long story. Can everybody do that? Can we open our eyes up real wide, open our ears up good and say, okay, I'm going to track for this whole story. Here we go. We've got to recap the whole story of Joseph and get to this wonderful climactic moment. So back in the first scene of the story, Joseph's brothers were envious of him. Uh, he was their father's favorite son, 11 brothers. They're all fighting for who gets to be in charge of the throne after dad goes. So who, who gets to be the leader in this family? It would probably be Judah because he's the oldest child that hasn't yet angered his dad so much that he would forfeit it. But Joseph is really favored. Jacob really likes Joseph. So the other brothers become envious. Judah rounds them up together and says, let's, let's sell him into, well, first let's throw him into a pit and let's kill him, and then let's sell him into slavery. And so with Judah's influence, this is what they wind up doing, selling their brother into slavery. He gets carted off into Egypt, and much happens to him there the brothers don't know. They just assume he's a slave now in Egypt. What they don't know is that he has risen to becoming second in charge in all of Egypt. Then, when seven years of plenty come and seven years of famine after that, uh, they have to go to Egypt to buy grain. And so, guess who they have to go to to buy the grain they need to survive? They've got to go to Joseph, their brother. Problem is, they don't recognize him. It's been two decades. He's grown up. He looks really different. They don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And his heart kind of breaks for them. He shows them great generosity. He wants to be reunited with his family. But if these are the same ruthless guys that sold him into slavery, he can't afford to reveal who he is to them. So he puts a test before them. So in the story we read last week, Joseph places a difficult choice before them. He pretends to be a mean Egyptian official who doesn't like Hebrew people, which is very common back then. He binds up one of the brothers, Simeon, takes him off into prison and says, you told me you have another brother, but I don't believe you. You go back home, take the grain with you, bring your brother back with you, and if you prove your words true, I'll release your brother to you. So they say, okay, we'll do it. Then... He loads them up with the grain, takes the money they paid for it, and he has the money snuck back into their packs. So they're on the way home, and one of them finds the money in his pack, and he's afraid. They make it all the way home, and then they all find their money in their packs, and they're afraid. This is kind of like uh, what I hope for most of us is in TV shows, when a drug deal goes bad and it gets violent, like, oh no, this person thought I stole from them and they are ruthless. This is not going to be good. They find their money in their packs and they realize, this man thinks we stole the money. If we go back, he's going to throw all of us in prison. But we have to go back to get Simeon. So they got this choice before them. Do they abandon their brother into prison? Or do they risk their lives by going back to rescue him? 
They get back. Reuben says to Jacob, okay, if I don't go get Benjamin, you take my two sons and you can kill them, dad. And Jacob says, if that's how you feel about your sons, I'm not going to send my son with you. So they're kind of in this stalemate. And that's where the last story is left ended. What we see happens this week is they just kind of sit there for a while. They stare at each other. They run out of food. They stare at each other some more. And they're like, Dad, we got to go back and get more food. We got to go back and get Simeon. And Jacob's saying, no, no, you can't go. You've already taken one son from me. You've already, I've already lost Joseph. I can't send Benjamin with you. So they look at each other some more. They starve some more. And finally, Judah steps up in verse 8, and this is what he said. Here's 43, verse 8. Judah says to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, that's Benjamin, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also all our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever." If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. So Judah basically says, Dad, this has gone on long enough. Send Benjamin with me, and I will take responsibility for him. If I don't bring him back, you can blame me. So here, this guy that we're wondering if he has changed is showing initiative and taking responsibility. Maybe he has changed. Well, okay, the story goes on. Jacob's not happy with this, but he says, okay, last time my brother Esau was really angry with me, we always, almost had a war. I sent him a bunch of gifts, and he was happy. So let's try that, right? So let me send you with all the choice fruit that we have and all the good stuff we've got. Take lots of gifts with you. Go back to Egypt. So they all go together. They take Benjamin with them. They go back. They give the gifts to all kinds of people. See, we're not thieves. Look, here's some nice grapes. Like, this is going to be great, right? And then... They're invited to feast with Joseph. And so this is their chance walking in the door to tell the steward, hey, that, that money that was in our packs, like we didn't mean to take that. We didn't steal that, I promise. Like here it is, we're not thieves, we promise. And the steward reassures them. He says, hey, I've got record right here. We got your money, don't worry. God must have put it back in your sacks, right? So whew, they're not gonna be taken for thieves. It's going to be okay. They go and sit down and they feast with Joseph. And Joseph is drinking from his very expensive cup that the Lord of the house gets to drink from. It's small enough that it could be snuck into a pack and stolen. But there it is on the table. And he gives everybody portions. He gives Benjamin five portions. And then he says, all right, let's sell you the grain and you guys can go home. But he has one more test for them. He has not only the money, but that special cup that he drinks from snuck into Benjamin's pack. So they go off, and then he sends his men after them. They catch up to him. You can hear the galloping of the hooves. They come back, and they say, how could you steal this cup that means so much to our master? They even say, this is the cup from which he practices divination, right? Ancient people, like in Egypt, they used to uh, take a cup and either fill it with oil or water, and then mix the other one in there so the oil water mixed. And the pattern would be how the gods would communicate with them. 
Joseph is at least pretending that he does this. And so they catch up to the brothers and they say, how could you take this? And the brothers say, no, 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 no. We did not take that cup. If you find it in anybody's pack, you can put us all to death or take us all as slaves. We promise we didn't take this thing. So one by one, they search the oldest one's pack and the next one and the next one. They keep not finding it. And they get to the last son, Benjamin, and they check his pack and there's the cup. And so they all weep and they tear their clothes because now Benjamin has to go be a slave in this man's house. Dad sent us with Benjamin and we lost him. So they all go back to Joseph's house. And Joseph rises up and scolds them and says, how could you take this from me? Did you not know that I would know? And at this moment, Judah steps up and shows his new character. I'm going to read to you chapter 44, verse 18 to the end. Judah went up to him and he said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, a young brother, the child of his old age. His father is dead. I'm sorry, his brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Those are the words of the Lord. So what we just saw right there is a complete turnaround in Judah's character. He's the last person that we would expect to give up anything. But he becomes the first person in the Bible to offer himself for the sake of another. 
So we've been expecting Joseph all along the way to point us to Jesus. Every step of the way, he looks like Jesus and he points us to Jesus. But the surprise in this story is that it's not Joseph that points us to Jesus. It's Judah. So through Judah's transformation, the Spirit is showing us how Jesus leads his people. And he is calling us to change in the ways that Judah changed So the big picture here, his character arc, what happens with Judah is he turns from self-centered leadership to sacrificial leadership, to the sort of leadership that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, gives to his people, laying down his life as a ransom for many. And as he does that, he gives us a picture, well, he already gave us a picture of what we are called to turn from as followers of Jesus. He gives us a picture of the fact that Jesus can change anybody. If he could change Judah, he can change me and he can change you. And then finally, in this story, he gives us a picture of what we are called to. And so that's how I'm going to structure the rest of this this morning. We'll look more briefly at what we are called from as believers when it comes to leading others, how it is we turn, and then what it is that we turn to. So first, earlier parts of Judah's story, things that we read, the recap I gave you before, shows us that leaders naturally domineer. The natural mode of leadership is to domineer those in your charge. Now, why is that? Well, because we're born in sin and we're selfish. So we receive any kind of power, any kind of authority. The default position is to use that to get what you want out of other people. This is painted through and through in the whole Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. There's one human relationship in Genesis 3. It's Adam and Eve. Uh, And when they sin against God and the Lord speaks out these consequences to them, this is what the world is going to be like now that we live in a fallen world. He says to Eve, your desire will be set against your husband and he will rule over you. What this means, your desire set against your husband, it means you're going to resist him and his leadership. Like you used to be hand in hand walking, facing the same direction. Now you're facing each other, set against each other. And so she's going to naturally resist even good leadership. He, on the other hand, is going to literally rule over, domineer over, or lord it over her. So this one human relationship we have, it's a leadership relationship, and now the one being led is always going to naturally resist, and the one leading is going to naturally domineer. This is how sin in a fallen world affect leadership relationships. But it's not just in marriage, it's in every leadership relationship. Jesus says to his disciples, when they are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, just like these brothers have been fighting over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, he says to them, hey, the leaders in the world around you lord it over their people, but it's not to be so with you. So he's saying like worldwide, the world around you, like leaders lord it over their people. This is what sinful people do when you give us power. But you're not to be that way. We'll finish that thought later. For now, we just grab. That's the normal way we lead. James says something very similar in chapter 2. He talks about quarrels and fights. Chapter 3, he talks about uh, those of us that are leading from what he calls uh, selfish ambition and, and envy, right? That is, I want to be on top, 
And I don't like that that other guy threatens me being on top, and so I don't like him, right? Leading from envy, living from envy and selfish ambition. This is how our great enemy Satan leads and influences people. And so when we live and lead like that, he comes along with satanic wisdom to whisper right into our ear, oh, you want to control people? I know how to do that do this, right? All these domineering methods begin. He just whispers them right in our ear with wisdom from below, James says, which leads to then conflict and uh, and chaos, conflict and moral corruption. So, So the normal picture of leadership painted in the Bible is we're selfish, we want our way, we're going to use domineering methods to gain power over other people and wind up hurting the people we lead so we can get what we want. That leads to conflict and immorality. That's tragic, but it's the norm. And I say all of that not so that you can think about the leaders in your life and finally have enough to skewer them and show how bad they are. I say that so that you can know that that's in your heart as well. I may be your pastor, but I have to wake up every day knowing that there is a selfish part of my heart that wants to domineer my wife and wants to domineer you guys. And part of what we have to do as Christians every day is, as Jesus says, die daily to self. We have to know that these sinful tendencies are in us so that we can turn from them, so that we can silence them, so that we can turn to Jesus and walk in his ways. That means if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, part of coming to him is looking at that old portrait of Judah and saying, that's what I'm like, all right? I want to think of myself as a really nice guy who's a great husband and great leader, but I know what's really in my heart, a desire to domineer others. Uh, that's me, we might have to say. I had a really great employee, but I was threatened by how good he was, so I fired him, right? These are the kinds of things that we do. And part of turning to Jesus is saying, Lord, that is me, and I'm turning from that. On the other hand, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Part of following him is like Jesus says, like I quoted a minute ago, dying daily to self, realizing that all those little parts of sin live on in us. The old man still lives within us and we must get up every day and crucify our old selves and say, that's not how I'm going to live anymore. So now a leader in the business world wakes up in the morning and he says, I know there is still greed in my heart, but I'm not going to live by it today. I know there's still selfishness in my heart, but I'm not going to live by it today. We have a portrait of that stuff we're turning from when we look at the way Judah used to be. But the good news of this story is that if, Judah, if the Lord can change Judah, he can change anybody, can't he, right? Including me and including you. Some of you, I wonder if if Twitter were to find out what you've done as a leader, you know what they would say about you. And I want you to know that the Lord already knows, and he stands yet ready to receive you and see it all paid for. 
Some of you are thinking instead of just small things you've done, you think, oh, why did I do that? And I want you to know that the Lord already sees it, just as he saw all of Judah's sin. And he says, I will forgive that man and I will receive him back. What he has done is he has sent his son into the world uh, to live perfectly without sin and then to die a death in the place of sinners, offering himself in the place of all of his people who have been entrusted to him. And in that way, he's a lot like Judah, and Judah points us to him, right? Judah steps forward and he says, take me instead of him, right? And in the same way, if you are willing this morning to place faith in Jesus, to look to him for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, he is willing to look to the Father and say, that death I died on the cross, take me instead of him, take me instead of her. His death, counting as judgment for all of your sin, counting as payment for all of your sin. And then his life, risen from the dead, given eternal life to you forever. This and so much more, the securing of your forgiveness, eternal life in his name, a good Lord and leader that you can follow. You can have this much and more in Jesus Christ if you would come to him. And so if you see Judah change here and you say, I want to change like that, the first step is putting sin aside, looking to Jesus Christ and saying, I need you and I receive you. Then once we get to the story, Judah gives us a picture then of what Christ-like leadership looks like. And this was the big question a lot of you were left with a few weeks ago, right? We saw what bad leadership looks like. What does good leadership look like? What, what if I want to lead my family well? What if I want to coach this soccer team well? What if I want to find a good godly husband or a good godly boss at work? How do I find a leader who will be good to me? So for the rest of this morning, I'm just going to point out three ways that Judah's new leadership points us to Jesus' leadership. What does sacrificial, loving others' leadership look like? What are we called to change to? Three things. I'll give you all three now, and we'll go into a little bit of detail in each one of them. Here, Judah takes responsibility. He takes initiative, and he sacrifices for others. He takes responsibility. He takes initiative, and he sacrifices for others. We'll look at responsibility first. Back in Canaan, they are all standing there. Everybody's starving. Something needs to be done. And dad just isn't willing to send his last son with the group to solve the problem. And so Judah both steps up, taking initiative, which we'll talk about in a moment. But he not only does that, he is willing to take responsibility. He says, dad, send the boy with me. And if I don't return with him, you can blame me, right? This is textbook responsibility, isn't it? I will take responsibility for that boy. And this is a total shift for Judah, who so far has made his every move about gaining power. He just wanted to be on top in this family and have a good solidified heir after him. All of his maneuvering and scheming was about that. But he is moving now from, I want power, to, I will take responsibility. And that's the mindset shift that pulls us from worldly leadership to godly leadership, moving from I want power, I want my way, to I'll take responsibility for that. 
Now, getting power sounds fun, doesn't it, right? You get to have your way, and you get to make other people do what you want. That sounds fun. Taking responsibility for something that might go south, that doesn't sound as fun, does it? No, it's actually kind of scary. Like, what, what if it goes wrong, right? And then it's on me. Like, I kind of don't want to do that. Maybe I don't want to be a leader now, right? But here is Judah. It's fallen to him. He's kind of head of those brothers. And so he says, okay, okay, I will take responsibility. And in the same way, if you're a baseball coach, you're just going to have to decide one day, do we put the pitcher with the sore arm in and probably win the game, but maybe he blows his arm out? Or do we put the other pitcher in and maybe lose the game, but we don't risk an injury? And the decision falls to you, which means the responsibility falls to you. And you might make it wrong. And if you do, everyone will know that it was you that made it wrong, right? Or it could be instead that you're at work and uh, maybe you're in the tech support support part of your work and and they say, okay, this entire department, we are going to upgrade the operating system on all of the computers. It's going to be a four-month project and you're in charge of it, right? It might go well. It might not go well, but but it's on you, right? Because it's been assigned to you. And it's just scary to step up and say, okay, I'll take responsibility for that. But that's the heart of Christian and godly leadership, which sees something stewarded to you as a responsibility rather than an opportunity to gain power. We see that fear of responsibility all over the scriptures. In Sunday school, we're looking at Gideon right now, who is just constantly afraid of the responsibility that God gives him. Every time the Lord will say, I will conquer through you, go and conquer. And he's like, I don't know, God, I'm kind of scared. What if this doesn't go well? Or... King Saul is given uh, kingship over the whole nation of Israel. They're crowning him king and chanting his name. And he's so scared of the responsibility that he's hiding in the armory and they can't find him. And many of us are that way as well, aren't we? Responsibility comes around and it's scary. But what sacrificial leadership does, what Christ-like leadership does, is say, okay, I may be intimidated by that, but, but I'll take it anyway. Dad, I'll take responsibility for Benjamin. You can send him to me, and if it goes wrong, it's on me. So here's the first mark of Christ-like leadership that Judas shows here, godly leadership, being willing to take responsibility. Twice in the story, we see Judah step up to take initiative. One in the time we just talked about, right? He steps up to tell his dad, I'll take responsibility for Benjamin. The other time, at the end of the story, which we read there, all of the brothers are seeing Benjamin taken off into slavery. No one knows what to do, but it's Judah who steps up to Joseph to speak to him, to say, I've got to do something. And we see a second mark of a godly leadership there is taking responsibility to serve others. I'm sorry, taking initiative to serve others. Initiative is seeing what needs to be done and then doing it without having to be told to. Now, in many roles in life, you could just simply do what someone tells you to do. I was just volunteering across the street for a play that my daughter is in, and all I had to do there was what the person above me told me to do. Here's a microphone. Put it on this child. Great. I'll do it. Right? Just follow the instructions. But at many points in life, you're the one in charge, and so you have to look around, and you have to see what's needed, and you have to take initiative to do it. This is a mark of godly leadership. 
In fact, Jesus shows it many times on earth. You can think maybe of the time where he is uh, going about his ministry and he sees a crowd and they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so he's got compassion on them and he goes over to them and he ministers to them. He says, this needs to be done. These people are like sheep without a shepherd and he goes and he does it. This is what separates a good person from a good leader. Someone who's willing to see this needs to be done. No one has to tell me to do it. I'm going to do it. And so if you're thinking of getting into leadership, or if you wonder if you're going to get promoted one day, what you need to do is become the kind of person who is walking on the sidewalk and sees a piece of trash on the sidewalk and just picks it up and puts it in the trash can, right? With nobody telling you, hey, there's a piece of trash, you should pick that up. Just seeing what needs to be done, picking it up and taking care of it. That kind of initiative is godly leadership. We see it all over the scriptures. King David, for instance, saw that the Lord was dwelling in a tent and he was dwelling in a palace. And he's like, I have the nicest house in Israel and God is camping in a tent. This is not right, right? So he takes initiative and says, Lord, I will build you a house. And it takes God himself coming to him and saying, no, you don't have to give it to your son. I want your son to build the house to call it off. So David sees something and he feels needs to be done and he does it. That godly initiative is so good. So you may come home from work and want to sit down and rest, right? I'm like this every day. Come home from work, man, I just want to sit on that couch. Long day. But instead, as a leader in the home, as a parent, or as a father, a husband, uh, you got to look around and say, okay, here's what's going on. Here's what's needed. Okay, not much is needed right now. I can sit down. Oh, wait, actually, Uh, My wife is busy over here and the kids should be helping her, but they're not helping her. And here's some undone homework here on the table. Looks like I'm going to need to take initiative. All right. And and then we're orchestrating the, okay, you need to do your homework. Three of you go and help mom. Right. So initiative to say this needs to be done. And because it falls to me, because I'm in charge here, I'm going to do it. There's the second mark of godly leadership. Third and most powerfully, We see Judah offer himself in Benjamin's place. This is such a big transformation for Judah because up till now, he has done everything he's done to be next in line to basically the throne of this family. It's a big, great family. So far, 70 people, lots of possessions. He wants to inherit the whole thing and have many heirs after him. So his whole life is built up to the day when his father dies and hands the family leadership to him. So it's rather important that he sees here, if I go home without Benjamin, it'll kill dad. Now, selfish Judah would say, finally, right? Finally, I get to be in charge. But this Judah says, no, I can't do that to my dad. I'd rather give myself into slavery and let Benjamin go home to dad. So not only is he he giving up everything he's wanted for his whole life, he's selling himself into slavery to save his brother. And so we see there the last mark of godly leadership, sacrificing for others. Taking responsibility for the well-being of other people in a fallen world is going to take suffering and sacrifice. 
If we were still living in Eden, we could take responsibility and lead each other, and it wouldn't hurt. We wouldn't have to suffer to do it. But in this world, if you're going to parent children, you will be up in the night changing diapers. That is just how it goes, isn't it, right? It's a fallen world, and so we must suffer and sacrifice to lead other people. And that takes us back to Jesus' words that I quoted earlier, right? He tells his disciples, leaders in the world lord it over those that are in their charge, Right? But it's not to be so with you. Right? What are we to do? What are Christians to do when we have leadership of others? He says, the greatest among you must be your servant. Even as I, the Son of Man, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So here is our greatest example in Jesus who comes to serve and then comes to give his life and suffer. And he bears in his body today some of the marks of that suffering that he gave to us. If the Lord puts employees in your care, or children in your care, a wife in your care, a soccer team in your care, you're going to wind up having to suffer for them. And you may even bear in your body the marks of that suffering. Maybe you've seen the pictures of presidents on the first and last day of their presidency side by side. Anybody ever see those? How much gray hair there is in the second picture. Mercy. President Obama went in looking like he was 25 and came out looking like he was 75. The gray hair. Goodness. Eight years in the presidency aged him like 35 years. Why? Because he was under tremendous pressure, suffering and sacrificing for the sake of the people that were in his church, commander of the whole army in chief, and so much responsibility to lead other people takes it out of you like that. And so if you have suffered for your children, and and you bear the marks of that in your body, uh, if you have stayed late so that your employees could go home early, and your eyes are dark and baggy in the next day, and you're bearing that in your body... You are following in the footsteps of your Lord, who suffered for the people that were given to him, and even to this day, bears the marks in his own body. The Lord is making you like Jesus in even that suffering. And so that's then the last mark of godly leadership, being willing to sacrifice for others. So it's not Joseph who points us to Jesus in this story, it's, it's Judah. And he does that. When he looks up and says, don't take him, take me instead. And so I want to leave you in the hands of that Jesus, who either has or is willing to stand in your place and say to God the Father, don't take him, don't take her, take me instead. Would you put your faith in him and rest all that you have on that Jesus? Let's pray together.